Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I was always a dreamer. I always saw a life beyond the life that I had as a child. It was like a big flashing light. This is what you're supposed to do. Everybody poo-pooed the idea. Network said it couldn't be done. You're in that zone, and it's that out-of-body experience where it just, everything clicks. Sometimes you have those dark moments. I was so depressed when I got fired. I was so mad. People don't need to be afraid to fail. And again, that, that's where you learn. You don't shouldn't be afraid of adversity. You know, that that is the thing that, that makes you strong. This is Jerry Levias. This is Jody Markell. This is Chi Yun. This is Dick Vitale, and you're listening to American Achievers. Welcome to American Achievers the podcast that celebrates ambition, commitment to excellence, risk-taking, and tenacity on the road to success. I'm Keith Dunavant. Some of my guests are world-famous. Some are rather obscure. Our weekly lineup includes entrepreneurs, athletes, military heroes, civic leaders, artists, and media figures. What they all have in common is a sense of undeniable purpose and an intriguing story that reflects the power of the American dream. Joe Galloway spent his entire life walking a fine line. With deep family roots in the American military, Galloway grew up fascinated by war. His father talked very little about his service in World War II, coloring that experience in a mysterious fog. Joe always wanted to know what combat was really like. He wanted to know the ugly truth. A stroke of fate pushed him into journalism, and while still in his early 20s, Galloway wound up as a war correspondent in South Vietnam, just as that conflict exploded. In the jungle, he straddled that fine line between journalistic detachment and emotional investment in the men he was covering. Being on the scene in November of 1965 for the Battle of the Idrang Valley, The first major engagement of the war marked him for a lifetime. It marked him deep in his soul. He saw young men die all around him and even carried one badly wounded soldier off the battlefield, for which he would later be awarded the Bronze Star. During that awful week, he met two of the greatest friends of his life, and the battle left each man scarred. It was a scar they would all carry to their graves. A quarter century later, Galloway and General Hal Moore collaborated on a best-selling book, which led to the Mel Gibson movie, We Were Soldiers. Galloway's life offers many lessons, including an important one for journalists. You don't have to be detached to tell the truth. Sometimes when you stumble over that line, you discover a higher truth. Because he understood this, Galloway became one of the greatest war correspondents of all time. He died in 2021 at the age of 79. This was one of his last in-depth interviews. 
War is deeply embedded in your life story. Tell me about your great-grandfathers. Well, these are stories I got from my grandmothers, so of course they are true. Of course they are. Grandmas don't lie. Uh, my great-grandfather, Sergeant James Isham Galloway, was in the 4th Texas Infantry Hoods Brigade. Uh, lost his left leg charging the guns of the New York Zouaves at 2nd Manassas. Uh, Great-grandfather James Reed, private in the 2nd Louisiana Infantry, lost his right leg in the use of his right arm uh, as a color bearer of his regiment at the Battle of the Wilderness. He lasted about two minutes from the opening of the battle. And he was pretty young, right? He was 16, I think. He had been captured by the Yankees at, at Cold Harbor. And uh, he was so young that they paroled him to go home. And instead of going home, he went back to his outfit. And they rewarded him by making him the color bearer on the eve of that horrific battle in Virginia. Uh, and like I say, he didn't last long. So stubbornness runs deep in the family, right? Runs deep. <laughs> and uh, after the war, he moved to Texas, and he bought the farm next door to Sergeant Galloway. And those two old coots would go to town once a year, buy one pair of boots and split them up between them, and go out the door giggling over how they had screwed the shopkeeper out of two pairs of boots. Uh, the uh, military and wars are sort of in my blood. I grew up, my father and five of his brothers and four of my mother's brothers were all in uniform during World War II. And you were born, what, right around the I time of... I was born right before Pearl Harbor. And my earliest memories are of growing up in houses full of frightened women, looking out the window for the telegraph boy. My mother and I would move between her mother's home in East Texas and my dad's mother's home 25 miles away in the town of Franklin. And uh, we would stay here until we wore out our welcome and we would move down the road and all of the other wives and firstborn kids were doing much the same. So that How long was, was it before you met your father? I didn't meet him until the end of 1945 when he got out of the Army. What was that uh, meeting like? What the homecoming was fantastic. <laughs> you know, he, I had him around the leg, and I wanted, he had the overseas cap, and I wanted that hat and he threw it out in the yard and I ran to get it and by the time I got back on the porch he and mom had gone inside and locked the door. <laughs> my my younger brother came along not too long, about nine it's months after that. Works, that. Isn't it? Funny yeah. how that works. So we're gonna get into into depth about, about your career here, but it, looking back on it now, was this desire to be a war correspondent, was this some search to understand about your father? Is that what it all comes back to? Not really. You know, I, I, I was curious about 
my father and my uncles, and what I noticed was that they would tell you funny stories, they would tell you jokes, but they wouldn't talk about the reality of combat. And, uh, and that's what we really wanted, all of us kids, and they just kind of pushed us off. And uh, I read the collected columns of Ernie Pyle as a young guy, and I thought, if my generation has a war, I want to cover it, and I want to cover that war like Ernie Pyle covered his war. But So you had this feeling in you long before Vietnam. Yeah, absolutely. But you wanted to become a reporter, and so why did you want to be a reporter? I don't know. That was in my blood, too. And uh, I, uh, I actually only went to college for six weeks, and I was bored out of my mind. Where'd you go? Uh, community college in Victoria, Texas. And uh, I, I just dropped out. I wanted, I was going to join the Army, and I was only 17, so my mother was going to have to sign, and I had to browbeat her into doing that, and she was driving me to the recruiter's office when we went by the, the Victoria Daily Advocate newspaper, and Mom, God rest her soul, said, Joe, what about your journalism? And I said, oh, good call, Mom. Stop the car. <laughs> literally, uh, you were literally. going to the recruiting station. Yeah, I was on the way. We were two blocks away from the courthouse. And, uh, and I had been the, re the campus stringer for that newspaper for my six weeks in college. And I walked in and went up to Jim Reck, the managing editor, and said, you wouldn't happen to have a vacancy for a reporter. And he said, well, yes, actually I do. And I said, well, I'd like to be that reporter. And he hired me on the spot for 35 bucks a week and a free subscription to the paper. And I was 17 years old and working on the city desk of a newspaper and learning it the hard way. I did 18 months of boot camp at the Victoria Advocate and I went up and applied at UPI. I heard they had a vacancy in Houston and I went up there and interviewed with the bureau chief and uh, filled out an application and uh, they called me a couple of weeks later and, and offered me a job in the Kansas City Bureau. I'd never been north of Dallas, Texas in my life. I loaded up all my belongings in my 55 Thunderbird, and uh, there was a song in the top 10 that week, going to Kansas City. And I bellowed that all the way north to Kansas City. I arrived there, I think, in January, in the dead of a bad winter and went to work for UPI. What did you learn about reporting in those days that was going to serve you well? I, I learned how to talk to people and more importantly how to listen to them. And uh, I had learned some of that from my grandfather listening to his stories and how he told them and, and how he could really make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. Talk, telling ghost stories and all kinds of stories. And uh, 
it, throughout my younger days, I had a facility for befriending and listening to older guys. Not least in Kansas City, within two weeks of arriving there and going to work on the night shift at the UPI Bureau downtown Kansas City, the boss said, eventually you're going to get a message from the New York desk that they've got a question they want you to ask Harry Truman. Here's his home phone number. And sure enough, I hadn't been there two weeks, and I'm dialing Harry Truman's home phone with a trembling finger <laughs> and apologizing. He answered his own phone, and it was 10 o'clock at night. And uh, kind of be kind of late to be calling an ex-president. Yeah, yeah, it was, and I'm apologizing like crazy. And he says, "No, son." He says, "Go ahead, ask your question," and I ask it. And he said, "Well, the answer's on page 213 of the second volume of my memoirs, but I know your editors can't read, so here's the answer." And I'm apologizing again, and he says, nah, he said, I like reporters. It's just goddamn editors I hate. <laughs> and uh, he said, come see me at the library. And I did. And we became friends. I would go over and stick my head in the office door, and his secretary was Miss Rose, and I'd say, Miss Rose, is the boss in? And She'd say, how many school buses did you count in the parking lot? And I'd say, well, it looked like about 20. She says, you know where he is then. And I'd walk on down to the auditorium and slip in the back. And the former president of the United States would be sitting on the lip of the stage with his little feet dangling, talking to 500 eighth graders from Joplin, Missouri. And he would talk to them about the duties and responsibilities of the office of president. He never talked about the power, and he talked about the Constitution. And uh, I can't think of a single president that I have known since then that I can see doing that. We're way past that now. But old Harry did it, and he did it every day. What did you like about Truman? Total honesty, no bullshit. Uh, he had that sign on his desk, the buck stops here, and it did. And you know, we've had presidents in a row, the buck never stopped with them. It's still going around the beltway at increasing speed. Uh, it's that idea of accepting the duties and the responsibilities and knowing that, that you've got to make the decision. That's what I liked about Harry Truman. Eventually you move up and with uh, UPI. Yep, they, they, after nine months they sent me to Topeka as the State House Bureau Chief covering politics, covered the In Cold Blood murders. Uh, Did you interview those guys? Yeah. What was that like? Oh, creepy. That, uh, this, for those who don't remember, of course, became the... This was the, the, these two ex-cons 
We're going to rob a family, a farm family out in western Kansas. And they murdered mom and dad and the sister, the young teenage sister and the young teenage brother, blew their heads off with a 12-gauge shotgun. And they were put on trial for their lives. And uh, uh, This was at a time, by the way, when... You didn't hear about this stuff on the news every day, stuff like this. No, it was, but this was a big thing. And, uh, and what's his name? Who Truman wrote? Capote. Truman Capote yeah. and Harper Lee turned up to cover the trial. Right. And they were going to write a book together. And Harper Lee, I think, was horrified at the, the violence of the story and the creepiness of these two guys. And she backed out of the deal. But Truman Capote went ahead to write In Cold Blood, which is almost uh, uh, like a transcript of the trial. Yeah. And uh, I covered the appeals. I, you know, we'd go out at federal court in Topeka, and uh, they brought them over from the prison, and uh, Hickok and Smith. And... Uh, We'd stand out smoking cigarettes in the hall on the breaks and talking to those guys. And they, I mean, how did how did you how did they strike you? Creepy. Yeah. Creepy. Uh, Hickok was the normal one of the two. Uh, Smith. No, wait a minute. Other way around. Smith was the more normal one. Hickok was a little gimpy-legged guy who had busted himself up in a motorcycle accident. And uh, I think he's the one who did the shooting. But it was the other guy's idea that this he knew this family and he was knew they were rich and they were bound to have a lot of money in their house and they didn't. But that was, you know, not the only murder trial I covered out there. There was another pair of GIs, uh, York and Latham, who murdered a dozen people in a cross-country crime spree. And while I was in Topeka, I covered an execution at the state prison. And in Kansas, they hanged them. So I watched them hang a... 22-year-old college boy named Lowell Lee Andrews uh, took him 21 minutes to be pronounced dead. Pretty, yeah, pretty grim stuff at midnight. How did that affect you watching that? Not much. I saw it as a story. And, uh, you were able to keep your emotions in check at that, you know, watching yeah, this. Yeah, it was, it was eerie because you were midnight the, the gallows is set up in, uh, in a, uh, where they stored the baseball bleachers in the wall of the prison in a warehouse. And uh, when they dropped the trap door, it made a big noise, and every prisoner in that prison started rattling his tin cup on the bars. And there was this cacophony that rose up out of the darkness. And uh, when they pronounced him dead, and I ran across the yard to the warden's office and got on the phone and dictated the story. Uh, but we were 2 o'clock in the morning getting out of that place. And I was supposed to see them hang York and Latham and Hickok and Smith, too, but I got transferred to Asia. 
And you were itching at that point to get into Vietnam, right? I started writing a letter a week to my bosses at UPI in New York uh, in about 1963. And, and, I'm and, reading uh, early put, stories out now let's, of Vietnam. Let's put this in context. In 1963, most Americans could not pick Vietnam on a map. No, he didn't know it, had no idea. But I was reading the stories by David Halberstam and Malcolm Brown and Neil Sheehan of UPI, and I was convinced that that war was going to become an American war, and it was going to be the war I wanted to cover. And I started pushing for a transfer from Topeka, Kansas, to as close to that war as I could get. Now, let me ask you this. Now, you've got to be something deep inside you to make you want to, because after all, the number is, uh, let's see, 71 reporters died in Vietnam, right? Yeah. What made you want to take that risk with your life? I saw it as a story I wanted to cover, that I needed to cover. Uh, I can't go a lot deeper than that, other than it was, I thought it was a necessary job. I was 22, 23 years old. Uh, you know, we think we're bulletproof and immortal at that age. I, I wasn't afraid of dying. Didn't enter my mind. And it didn't enter my mind after I got to Vietnam either. I came out of the Idrang Valley where men were killed right beside me, had their brains blown in my face. And uh, I came out of there certain that I was immortal. And it wasn't until an operation in January or February down on the coast, and uh, I was marching with a company across a wide open, half mile wide rice paddy, wet, water and mud. And we were walking on a big, high, wide dike that probably six feet in the air. And they started walking mortars toward us. And everybody around me dove off of this into the mud. I just stood there and watched them walk that mortar until it was right on my doorstep. And then I jumped in. I, I, I realized I was being foolhardy and that I wasn't totally bulletproof. But there, you know, the young men have a, an attitude about them, and, and I sure had it in spades. Did you ever think back that if something hap different had happened, if you had stopped, if you had not stopped at the newspaper, gone to the recruiting station? I'd have probably been killed in Vietnam anyway. Yeah. As a soldier. As a grunt. Although the recruiter promised I would be an intelligence officer. And I believed him. They got killed, too. They got killed, too. Okay, so let's back it up. So you're in, uh, you're in Tokyo, and you're, you're angling to be sent to Vietnam. What happened? As soon as I got to Tokyo in December of 1964, I went to the boss and said, I want to go to Saigon. And he said, I just sent a second American to that bureau. We'll never need any more than that. <laughs> and I didn't push it. 
I went to learning what I needed to know to run the desk in the Asia division. And I was covering stories out of Laos and Burma and wherever. Uh, but I knew I was going to Vietnam. And uh, in March, they sent the 1st Battalion of Marines into Da Nang. And uh, they didn't have enough people in Vietnam to cover them. And so they sent a temporary guy in, and then they sent me in to replace him on a permanent basis. So in early April of 1965, I was on my way to Vietnam. And when did you first meet Hal Moore? I met Hal Moore uh, three days before the battle at LZ X-Ray. I marched with his battalion on one of those long, hot walks in the mountains and uh, spent a God, awful cold night on a high mountain plateau, and we had forded a river right before dark, and we were all sopping wet, couldn't light a fire, light discipline, sat there all night shivering like a banshee, and uh, come morning, finally the sun came up, and I got out of piece of C4 plastic explosive to boil my coffee water and I had that water boiling and I was just about to pour the coffee grounds in and Hal Moore and the sergeant major appeared on the lip of my foxhole and the old man says in my battalion son everybody shaves in the morning <laughs> and I looked at my coffee water and uh dug out my razor and my soap and shaved in my coffee water. Those two men became two of the great friends of your life, right? Absolutely. Tell me about the Sergeant Major and about Hal Moore. Sergeant Major was tender as woodpecker lips. He was a hard ass. Came out of a hard scrabble life in West Virginia joined the army so he wouldn't starve to death and he that's what he told me uh, went airborne for the 65 bucks a month uh, ended up in World War II he ended up in Korea and there he was in Vietnam as the sergeant major of a very fine battalion and he was not a man to trifle with he would eat you alive and Sam Elliott almost got him, right? Almost got him. Not quite hard enough. The Sergeant Major, some of the best lines in that movie are true, and they came right out of Plumlee's mouth. Well, especially, uh, who appointed you the weatherman's son? Don't you say good morning to me. He was, he was a piece of work. And Hal Moore was simply the finest combat commander I ever saw in action in half a dozen wars and four tours in Vietnam. An intuitive, instinctive, and intelligent commander who could sit there and read the enemy commander's mind and get 10 seconds in front of him. And that's all it takes to keep your men alive. Thanks for joining us on American Achievers. 
If you enjoy the podcast and would like to access our exclusive premium content, visit us, AmericanAchievers.us, or search for American Achievers at Patreon.com. For a few bucks a month, you can access our exclusive monthly email newsletter, the monthly American Achievers Extra audio program, and the quarterly Zoom show American Achievers Green Room, where you can interact with one of our accomplished and intriguing guests. For details, visit AmericanAchievers.us and click on the Premium Membership button. Now back to the program. So let's set up the situation in the fall of 65. You've been in country for a while. You, by the way, were carrying an M16 by this point, right? Yep. Tell me that story. Well... I came by the M16 by way of a man named Major Charlie Beckwith, founder of Delta. He was then running a, they called it the B-52 detachment of special forces, uh, a special unit that did cross-border actions, uh, go over and follow up on bombing raids and do after-action reports and things and other things I didn't want to know about. But he had gone in to play me special forces camp to take command of it. Uh, It was under siege by a regiment of the North Vietnamese Army, probably 1,200 men, and there were maybe 15 Americans and 100 mountain yards inside that barbed wire dug into the red dirt. And uh, they had shot down two Hueys and uh, a couple of Air Force fighters, a, a, a B-57 Canberra they had shot down. They had the camp surrounded with these Chinese 51 caliber anti-aircraft guns on big tripods, and uh, I talked a Texas Aggie buddy of mine into flying me into that camp, which he was not supposed to do. And and, I, by, and by the way, a lot of the guys in Vietnam, a lot of the reporters were staying in Saigon and listening for the, the, the five o'clock follies, as you called them, right? Yeah, that's true, and I was persuading a pilot it was his duty to get me into this camp under enemy fire and he did uh and i bailed out and he they threw a few wounded on and he took off and uh uh, master sergeant said uh ran up he said sir i don't know who you are but major beckwith wants to see you right away and he pointed him out, and I went over there, and Beckwith was beside himself. He said, who the fuck are you? And I said, I'm a reporter. And he said, you know, he said, I need everything in the world. He said, I need ammo, I need medevac, I need food. I could use a bottle of Jim Beam and a box of cigars, and what has the Army and its wisdom sent me but a goddamn reporter? He said, I have news for you, son. I have no vacancy for a reporter on my staff, but I'm in desperate need of a corner machine gunner, and you're it. And uh, he gave me a 15-minute lecture on the care and feeding of the air-cooled 30 caliber light machine gun, and 
put me on it, and I was there for two days and nights making some use of it. And uh, finally, the armor column fought its way through the ambush, and, and then a battalion of the cab came boiling off their helicopters, and I was marching out to hook up with the cab and uh, went to say goodbye to Charlie, and, and he said, you're not carrying a piece, son, and I said, well, technically speaking, I'm a civilian non-combatant, and uh, he, he said, ain't no such thing in these mountains, son. Sergeant, get this man an M16 and a bag of magazines, and he did, and I marched out that gate carrying that rifle. Carried it for the rest of my time in Vietnam. That's a big deal, because after all, you're a journalist, yep. uh, you're there to, to, to cover this war, but Talk to tell me about the ethics of, of what you saw in that sense. I, look, I was going to cover this. I was going to report the truth of what I saw, but I had to survive to get the story out. And there were people trying to kill me. And I thought, look, I'm from Texas. You can't shoot at me and get away with that shit. I will shoot back and did. I didn't often. It wasn't my job. My first job was to be a reporter and my second job was to be a photographer and the overriding job was to stay alive and get the story and the pictures out. So by the time you get to, to landing zone x-ray, take me through that story. Fall of 65. Fall of 65. I've been circling around the, the 3rd Brigade of the cab. Colonel Brown was commander. They set up their headquarters at the Kateka Tea Plantation out of Pleiku on a dirt road. They were attacked by the local VC. Uh, was, I went on an operation with Hal Moore's battalion up into the Montagnard villages. And uh, I'm out there. It's uh, actually, I dug in under a tea bush, dug my foxhole, settled back. I asked a soldier over under the next tea bush what day it was. And he said, I think it's Saturday. And I said, what date? He said, I think it's the 13th. And I said, it's my birthday, I'm 24. And he pitched me a can of peaches out of the sea rations. That was a pretty good gift back <laughs> in those days. And spent the night under that tea bush. Next morning, they were loading up a line of helicopters and I went out and slipped on one. And pretty soon, a officer came running down the line looking in and counting the troops in every helicopter and he came to mine and he said who the hell are you and I said I'm a reporter and he said get off that helicopter and he put a medic in my seat can't argue with that and I was stomping up and down cussing because they they didn't have any room and Colonel Brown came by and he said, don't worry. He said, they're going out. It's probably going to be a hot walk in the sun. And 
anything happens, I will go out and you can come with me. So I was standing around the headquarters waiting and they landed and they got into it. Big fight is brewing and uh, Brown comes running out of his headquarters and I'm right behind him, get into the command chopper. We fly out there, easy to find. Smoke is rising 5,000 feet in the air over this battlefield. And uh, we're circling at about 12, 1,500 feet in the Huey. And Brown is on the radio trying to persuade Moore that he should let him land in there. And Moore is saying, you're in that command helicopter with all them antennas sprouting all over it. If you land in here, the enemy are going to shoot up your bird and you'll have to walk home. And so Brown decided about that time they shot down an A1E Sky Raider. It went right under our helicopter, streaming fire and smoke. And I watched it go in the jungle. And they're hollering, anybody see a shoot? And I it was my side of the chopper, and I had the mic, and I just clicked it and said, no shoot. He went in with the bird, and he's still there today. Captain McClellan, uh, wife and five kids, good man. Yeah, this was the first major battle of the Vietnam War. It was indeed. And uh, Brown dropped me at the artillery firebase five clicks away. They had two batteries of 105-millimeter artillery there. And they fired... 21,000 rounds in three days and three nights out of those two batteries. It was uh, very intense. And? And then it was a matter of finding a ride into the battle, and I couldn't find one. Five other reporters had turned up in that firebase, including my nemesis, Peter Arnett, of the AP. And uh, I happened to spot Hal Moore's S3, his operations guy, uh, Captain Matt Dillon, walking by, and I grabbed him. And he I didn't said, carry a six-shooter, did he? No, <laughs> no, he didn't. But he was a good man. He was Hal Moore's right-hand man, and. Uh, I said, Matt, I need, I need to get in there. And he said, well, I'm going in with two helicopters loaded with ammo as soon as it's dark. But I can't take you unless the old man says so. And I says, well, let's get him on the radio. And we go into a GP medium tent, and he gets on the Prick 25 radio, and I can hear Hal Moore over the sound of battle the rattle of musketry, as they used to say. And uh, he gives more a report. Here's what he's bringing and who he's bringing. And by the way, that reporter Galloway is here, and he wants to come in with me. 
and I'm listening close, and Moore says, if he's crazy enough to want to come in here and you got room, bring him. I had my ticket to ride. Then all I had to do is hide out from Arnett and the rest of those strap hangers. <laughs> they got a ride back for a hot meal in a cold bunk, and I got a ride into the pages of history. You're listening to American Achievers. Stay tuned for more conversation. So tell me about the battle. Well, it was very intense. It was, at times, hand-to-hand, bayonets fixed. People sticking each other in the chest with them. People shooting, dying all around. Had people shot in the head right beside me. Uh, There were companies that started the day with 120 men and by the end of the day had maybe 40 effectives. The rest of them were dead or wounded. Uh, Company C, their commander, company commander was shot their sergeant major was shot. Everybody was shot. The enemy crawled over their foxholes and executed their wounded, looted their watches and their money. Uh, now, it was not one-sided. We were unloading all of the air and artillery that a modern army can deliver. And one of the colonels that came on the trip back to the battlefield with us in 1993 was interviewed about what it was like attacking that that clearing and those Americans. And, And he said, we thought we would all die. We thought we were marching into the gates of hell. It was fire on every side. And he said, we were surprised when we lived. But they were good soldiers. What was it like to be in that situation and having people die around you, people that you had been talking to, people who might have even been friends at that point? How do you process that? Well, it's shocking, the first couple, but it, it, it becomes part of the background noise of war. And you got something to do. I'm, I'm taking pictures. I'm walking around the battlefield. I didn't even have a foxhole. The goddamn ground was so hard there that I couldn't dig a hole. We were just sitting behind a a rock-hard termite hill about the size of a Volkswagen car and uh, trees growing out of the top of it. And uh, if the bullets started coming this way, well, we'd move a little more this way. But that was all the cover we had. You were out there for how long? Two days and... Two nights, I guess. And so how long was it before you were able to file your first story on this? 
It was on the third day, fourth day, I guess. Tell me about the process of that, what you had to do at that point. First, I had to fly back to play coup. And uh, then I went to the officers club, which had a phone that hooked up to the military telephone system. And then I, I lied and said I was Colonel Smith, priority two, and got through to the next switchboard and to the switchboard after that and the switchboard after that, about four of them to get from Pleiku to Tonsonut. And then you say, Tonsonut, give me post-telegraph, Saigon PTT. And when you get the Vietnamese on the line and you tell him, I want 51383, which is the phone number for the UPI Bureau. And about half the time, the goddamn number would be busy and you'd have to start all over. It could take four or five hours to get through and dictate 400 words of a story. And that's about what it took. And when I finished dictating, my boss said, you heard about Dickie Chappelle? And I said, no, what? He said she was killed with the Marines. And Dickie Chappelle was a pioneering female reporter. First female correspondent killed in Vietnam. Guy in front of her Marine stepped on a booby trap mortar shell and just a tiny fragment of that mortar shell nicked her artery in her neck and she bled out right there with her head in the lap of a fellow reporter with a Catholic chaplain giving her the last rites. Uh, she was a good friend and when, when they told me she had died all of the deaths that I had seen that preceding three days just crashed down on me. And I walked out and sat down on the steps of that officer's club, just cried like a baby. So it did get to you? Oh, it got me. It got me. I knew what had happened. But until I had finished my story, until I would gotten my film shipped, until I learned that a good friend had been killed. It took all of that before I could really let it go. Did you know from the beginning that this was the beginning of something? Oh, yeah. That the Battle of Padrang uh, Valley was... That, that I might spend another 10 years covering Vietnam and never see combat so intense. And as it happens, I spent 43 years covering America's wars, and thank God I never saw anything as intense as landing zone X-ray and landing zone Albany. That's 305 Americans did in 10 days. 500 wounded. And when did you, years later, when did you first come up with the idea of writing the book with Almore, which became, of course, the blockbuster movie, We Were Soldiers? I think we knew, leaving that battlefield, that one day we would have to write that book. 
Do you think you survived for a reason? Oh, yeah. And more than once have I felt the hand of God on my shoulder. And I think I was tasked to survive that battle, to write that book for a purpose. Not just to tell the story of those who died there and those who fought there, but to tell that story so well and so thoroughly that it could stand for every soldier who marched in Vietnam, every man who died in that war. And I think we succeeded in that. I've been told so many times. And uh, in 1993, you and a bunch of those guys went back to Vietnam. We did. Tell me about that story. Well, we, the book had just come out in 92. And uh, we had gone over twice doing research for the book. And each time we pressed them to the North Vietnamese in Hanoi to let us go back to the battlefield. And they kept saying no. And we even threatened them and said, we're going to go anyhow. And uh, the guy <laughs> at the Ministry of Defense, he said, well, that would be very unfortunate because there would be a couple of cars full of some very stern people who will follow you. And if you ever stop, things will happen to you. So we didn't go on that trip. But then after the book came out and they read it and translated it into Vietnamese and all of them read it, they said, son of a bitch. They have quoted us accurately and fairly. They're honest people. And they sent a cable and said, if you want to go back to the battlefield, we will accommodate you. And so we prepared uh, to go uh, on ABC's Nickel. Uh, that they would send a documentary film crew and Forrest Tucker and uh, we would take a dozen American veterans and we would hook up in Hanoi with General Lon and three or four of his colonels who had been company commanders at the Iodrang and we would go back to the battlefield together and we did that. We did that. And you spent a night there, not on purpose. Well, not on my purpose, but <laughs> Al Moore's purpose. He kept telling me from the first day we started to research the book that we got to go back to that battlefield and we got to spend the night. And I kept saying, sir, there's no way in hell they're ever going to let us do that. And he say, hide and watch, Joe. And uh, we went back. We spent a day out in the heat walking that battlefield with the old enemy commanders who had tried to kill us there. And uh, That must have seemed incredibly surreal at that point. It was. It was. It, it, first of all, you see how much nature has repaired the damage of man. But then you find all of the detritus and the live ordnance and mortar shells and bombs and shit like that. But, but nature was reclaiming it. 
And uh, at the end of the day, Al Moore called us all into a circle. And we prayed for the souls of every man who died there, arm around each other, friends and enemies, friends who were now friends, enemies who were now friends. And uh, we had to leave in two lifts of the Russian hind helicopter that ABC had chartered for a lot of money. And Hal loaded it up with all of the Vietnamese and most of the Americans, and he and I and four or five other Americans stayed behind with the film crew and one Vietnamese army guy. And as soon as that first lift was gone, out of a clear blue sky came a monsoon rainstorm. And we stood there in the rain like jackasses in a hailstorm, and for about an hour it poured down. And then it was dark, and then we knew that helicopter was not coming back that night. You were stuck in Vietnam. We were stuck in this battlefield five kilometers from the Cambodian border where the Khmer Rouge were rampaging. And uh, we sat back, built a fire, and watched as the heavens exploded with one of the most incredibly intense mortar showers of meteors that I have ever seen. It was God's tracers just lighting up the sky for over an hour. And uh, then I would doze off a little and I wake up and Hal Moore was walking the perimeter of the old foxholes, communing with his dead soldiers. He had arranged this whole thing with God. He'd been praying for it for years. And we spent the night there. They, they mounted a rescue. Did, did Hal Moore find closure that night? Yeah, I think we all did. There was a feeling after that meteor shower that, that they're talking to us. They're saying, we're at peace, so should you be. Because this was a burden you carried. Yeah. I'm sure writing this book, was it a great catharsis for you to write that book? No. No. Writing the book was, was helpful. But I think Al Moore and I realized that we were not going to get to lay this burden down. That we weren't meant to. We're meant to carry these memories for all of our lives. You don't get to say that it's over. You find your peace a little at a time. You don't get one big hooray gimme. You, you have your meteor shower and, and you know that these guys are, they're at peace. And you also know that you're never going to be. How do you deal with that on a daily basis? You live for the good stuff. And you also live 
to carry the memory of those who can't be with you. At the end of the war, you happen to be back in Saigon. And uh, that very difficult ending, painful ending for us in spring of 75. Oh, terrible. And it was too much for you in the end, wasn't it? In the end, it was. It was, and it was one, simp not even a simple incident, a horrific incident that just broke me. And that was the crash of the baby lifter C-141 with, I don't know, 250 babies on board and probably 30 or 40 American women employees of the embassy and the intelligence services. And they all burned up off the end of the runway at Tonsonut in early April of 75. This was a very noble thing we were trying to do at the end of the war. This was something that we thought was good. And, and we ended up, they, they were dead. They were all burned up. And, and I had been sent to the 7th Field Hospital to see the casualties come in, and I was standing at the ER loading dock when an Army ambulance rolled up, and they opened the back door and pulled out the stretcher, and there must have been 30 babies' bodies burned terribly, piled in a, in a heap on that stretcher. And I just, uh, that, that broke me. I turned around and walked slowly back to the office, five miles or so. And when I got there, I said, get, get a replacement in because I'm leaving this place. I've had it. There's a metaphor there somewhere. There is somewhere. There is somewhere. You, you covered several more wars. I did. But it was Vietnam that marked you. Yeah. Why was that? Well, it was longer than any of the others, or seemed so at the time. I did three and a half years in Vietnam. Uh, I saw it from beginning to end. It was certainly the most intense combat that I would see in any war. Uh, it was a high water mark for me. Here I am sitting here talking about it 53 and a half years later. And why do you think we're still fascinated? Why do you think we are still conflicted about the war? Because we never sorted out in our heads the whole thing. We can sit here today and look and see that the politicians never learned a thing from it, that our military never learned a thing from it. It was, we paid such a horrific tuition, 58,300 dead Americans, a million dead Vietnamese, national treasure by the billions wasted, and we got nothing for it. We learned nothing from it. 
these guys in Washington start wars now that last 17 years and haven't ended yet. Afghanistan, if ever there was a place you shouldn't go as a foreigner starting a war, ask Alexander the Great, ask Queen Victoria. She sent three British armies in there and she was lucky to get a quarter of one of them back. Uh, ask the Russians. They went in with no rules of engagement, total vicious violence, and got their ass handed to them. And here we go. For 17 years we've been fighting there. Makes no sense. You were awarded the, the Bronze Star. The only reporter get that kind of honor out of Vietnam. From the Army. The Marines dedicated decorated three of my friends. What does that mean to you? It means that I cared. That I could step away from being a reporter and be a soldier for a while. And what did they give, the, give you that honor for? For carrying a wounded man out of a napalm fire. Would you tell me about that moment? I can tell you about that boy. Yeah. Named Jim Nakayama out of Rigby, Idaho. Uh, married. His wife back home was having a baby girl that week. And he was hit by a mistaken strike of a napalm canister by the U.S. Air Force. And he was burned up bad. And I got up and ran into that fire and drug him out of it. And then I got to listen to him scream for the next four hours. And carried him to the helicopter that took him away. And two days later, he died. And I've sat with his widow and, and that daughter. And what do you tell them about him? What I could. And there were things I couldn't. Your relationship with Hal Moore and the, and the Sergeant Major marked your life, right? Absolutely. Tell me about your friendship with those two guys. Well, Hal Moore was like a father to me. He was my best friend. He was my captain in battle. Uh, the sergeant major was he was kind of like your grumpy old grandpa. <laughs> and uh, I think we loved each other more than anybody else. And you spoke at both of their funerals, right? I did. What did you say? The truth of what good men they were what they meant to their soldiers. 
what they meant to their families and what they meant to this country. What did, they, what did those two men represent for this country? The very best of the Sergeant NCO Corps and the very best of our Officer Corps. They were old school. They were the sort who took care of their troops first, last, and always. They would never eat before their troops did. They would never find shelter before their troops were sheltered. This is it just ingrained in them. It's, it's duty, honor, country personified. Do you feel responsibility as one of the last guys who was there to keep that, the memory of that battle alive? Absolutely. Absolutely. There are a lot of lessons to be learned from it. What's the biggest lesson? You get in a fight like that, you better pray you got a Hal Moore and a Sergeant Major Plumley, and the other NCOs that had seen two or maybe three wars by then. Uh, you pray that the men around you care more for your life than they do for their own, and they're willing to sacrifice that life for you. Those are the lessons that I took from it. That and an overwhelming debt that I owe them. Did you ever get to talk to your father about your experience in Vietnam? Some, yeah. Did you want to? Not a lot, not a lot. I talked to some of my uncles more than my dad. Why was that? I'm not sure. Mom told me that he worried himself sick every day that I was in Vietnam, every day that I was in combat. They died not long after the end of the war. When you, you think back when you were a little boy, the, the, the fact that you can remember, as you said, frightened women waiting for the telegram man, paint that picture for me. That was the way it was. The women looked out the window for the telegraph boy because that's how the news came from the battlefield. If you had lost a husband or if he was wounded, it came by Western Union. I thought one of the more uh, poignant parts of the We Were Soldiers movie was the way they captured that scene in 65 back Absol at Fort Benning. Yeah, absolutely. They were delivering the most horrific of news by World War II or World War I standards of a yellow telegram. And the fact that in fall of 65, the Army wasn't prepared. Wasn't prepared. 
Not for the kind of mass casualties that a, a landing zone X-ray and landing zone Albany would produce in one week. At that that week, if I remember right, there were a thousand additional dead Americans added to the rolls, and at that point there were had only been a total of 1,100 Americans killed in in the war since 1959 when they started keeping count. So it was a a shock. To, to Washington and to to the people in this country that suddenly this was happening and certainly the army was they didn't have enough coffins in Vietnam they it took them three weeks to identify casualties and get them in a box and get them shipped home now being there for that seminal moment do you feel blessed or cursed What I know is my life changed that moment. And I think for the best, I think I'm a better human being because of what I witnessed, what I participated in, the things I saw and the things I did. I know that if I were walking back toward the helicopter, I would still get on it. I would still do the same things. Uh, I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't change it. Even knowing all of the scars that I would bear, most of them on my heart. You were involved in something now in preserving history in terms of long-form interviews with uh, veterans. Tell me about that. Well, it is the Vietnam War 50th Anniversary Commemoration Project. It's, It's financed by Congress. It's run out of the office of Secretary of Defense. And uh, I have only a small part, but the best part, I get to travel the country doing video interviews with uh, Vietnam veterans. We have uh, 800 two-hour interviews in the can, and we're shooting for 1,000. These interviews, untouched, go into the archives of the Library of Congress, their military history archives, and they will be there, the voices of these veterans telling their stories for all time. 200 years from now when we're all dead and dust, researchers can go into that archive and do original research on the Vietnam War in the words of the men who fought there. And every time I do one of those interviews, I learn something I didn't know about the Vietnam War. So it's good. At some point in the future, Long after you're gone, somebody's going to want to write again about you. What do you want them to say? Uh, Well, if they read what I've written, they hear what I've said, 
if they would just notice that I cared, that'll be enough. Thanks to Lane McGibbony and all the good folks at Boutwell Studios for all the TLC required to bring this podcast to life. And audio engineers Joe Beeman and Jonathan W. Hickman. Remember, everyone has a special talent. You just need to identify it, cultivate it, and be willing to pay the price. You, too, can become an American Achiever.